Amen. Amen. Well, um, worship was really rich this morning. And, um, you know, we always just need reminding of why we do what we do, right? We can get stuck in just doing a routine. Um, and so our hope is that every Sunday we come with expectant hearts and just saying, God, we want you to speak again. We want you to remind us again of who you are. We want to shake hands with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we reminded of how uh, special and unique it is to gather and to celebrate him. Um, and hopefully you're already pumped up uh, for Jesus this morning, but we're going to keep it going. Um, I'm going to back up a little bit into the story of when our son Ethan was born, all right? So if you don't know, we've got five kids. Ethan is our oldest, is about to turn 10 in a week or so, so that's exciting. But um, it was back in July of 2009, all right? So 10 years ago, and, you know, Ashley and I, wanting to be incredible parents, were like many, so we bought the books. Ashley read most of them. I skimmed, um, but they were there on the bookshelf, okay? And so we had all these parenting books. We had the birthing books. We had books on prayers and how to pray over your child every day. We even, um, uh, you know, uh, attended a birthing class, which was quite the experience for me, um, uh, because, you know, every dad needs to be able to know their 1% to 2% role in that moment <laughs> at the hospital. It is 1% to 2%, just so you know. Um, and so we went through all this, and, you know, we would talk to our parents. They'd give us their advice. And, of course, like any prideful young new parents, we're like, hey, that's great. We know how you did it, but we're going to do it differently, right? Because we've been Googling how to really parent. <laughs> Um, and we've been reading books, you know, and so we had thought, hey, we were prepared. Like, we were ready for Ethan to come. We were going to be great parents, and we were really prepared. We thought over-prepared for everything that could happen when it came to actually to the actual delivery of our son. So the day came, though, and um, uh, all of a sudden, one day, Ashley's water broke. Now, we were close to the actual due date, and, you know, we didn't talk a lot in all the books we read about having to go in early. We were like preparing for like the normal stuff. And so when the water breaks, you kind of got about 24 hours to get that baby out. So we all of a sudden realize this, go to our doctor and she's like, hey, we got we to gotta get you to the hospital. So we get to the hospital and, you know, we're there and we're all excited and nervous and everything. And, but it's like, okay, it's coming, you know, because we've seen movies, right? And it's just like, you know, and, and you're kind of, oh, it's going to happen. And we're there, and a couple hours go by, and it's like we're waiting. And then, like, well, let's go talk a walk. Let's go take a walk. So we're walking, you know, and then we're waiting more, and then we're walking. And this whole process lasted 24 hours. So it was a very long delivery, way more arduous for my wife than for me. But there was plenty of crying, there was plenty of praying, there was, um, there was plenty of silence, there was plenty of everything, okay? We even had family, because we didn't know, we said, hey, we're going to the hospital, right? So they all drive up in the waiting room, you know? And you feel, you don't think about this, but when grandma or great-grandma comes, and they're in the waiting room, you all of a sudden start feeling this pressure. Oh my gosh, she is 80, like, she's in the waiting room. We gotta speed this thing up, you know? And, <laughs> You start feeling the pressure of like trying to, because great grandma's not leaving. Like she is staying there. She will sleep upright, you know? I mean, just, and so we're like feeling the pressure, you know? And I'm like texting, it's, uh, please pray. We're not there yet, you know? And I'm out there. I'm like, they're like, oh, like there's no news, you know? And I go back. I mean, you know the feeling. If you've been that, you're like, 
And they're, and like, and every time you go out, they're eating something new or they're drinking another beverage just to stay awake, you know? And this agonizing 24 hours of like, oh, we, no one told us this part, you know? And we finally get there and my wife is a hero and amazing, but let's just say it was a long 24 hours. But finally, Ethan came, he came out amazing and beautiful and crying, doing all the things supposed to do, and it was awesome. And I remember bringing the family and held him up like a Lion King. I was like, this is Ethan, you know, because we had held back and told everybody the name. I was like, Ethan Tyler, you know, it was awesome, right? So it was totally worth it. But here's what I want to tell you. That whole birthing experience is really much like parenting. It is much like the family right? Because we all have our plans. We all have our ideas. We think we're overprepared. And then life happens. You're thinking, "Uh uh-oh. Like there's just not a manual for every twist and turn that comes. And so as we plan and as we pray, you know, we think about becoming parents. And again, if you're in the room this morning, you're not a parent yet. Many of you are going to be parents one day. So tune in, don't tune out and take great notes. All right. So when But when you talk about the family and starting a family, and many of us through our families, you realize that there's this 18-year period of all these twists and turns, right? I mean, listen, our culture, we love getting on the Netflix or whatever. We love watching those shows, and it's like they always get you hooked, right? It's like you think it's going to end, but don't be dumb. It's not going to end episode two. It's just going to keep you going. And then to the next season, it's not even a season. It's just multiple seasons. But here's what I would argue. Any film you've seen, any movie you've gone to see, I would argue that any family would rival and trump any one of those storylines. Like you take the 18 years of raising your kids in your home, all the drama, all the romance, all the heartache, all the pain, all the celebration, all the exciting moments, the kid walking in, bleeding everywhere. It's like, what just happened to you, you know? It's like all the different things that happen as a parent would make an incredible film. It would make an incredible film, but they couldn't fit it in two hours. They couldn't fit it into 10 seasons. Here's why I say that, because I want us to recognize that your family that you've been raised up in, the family that you are now, if you are a parent, that you have your own children or a grandparent, your family has this amazing story that just keeps on going that you do not need to compare your family or story to another. We're, we are not rating like your family like movies, We're not giving five stars here and two stars here. That's not really exciting or that's not really unique. If you do that, you need to cut it out. (laughs) You need to stop comparing your family to someone else's. You need to stop comparing and getting jealous or getting envious about someone else's upbringing. You were an only child or you had seven children. I don't know why that'll happen, but that is your life. And if you will embrace that, and if you will say, God, speak into this place in my life, I'm telling you the journey is gonna be way more exciting and enjoyable. Amen? So we are not to despise our family. We are not to be in comparison with our kids. Oh, it's my kid was taller or shorter or louder or quieter or whatever the thing is you experience. Don't do that. Instead, say, this is my child. This is my family. These are my parents. And so God, would you speak into this thing that seems chaotic sometimes and help me understand the family? But for many of us, I would say, as we look at families today, it's no surprise that um, uh, the topic of families is a hot topic. I would argue it's always been one. And I would say that for a few reasons. But the first and foremost one is that God's plan A was that his glory would be made manifest through the church and through the family. 
Like he set up marriage, husband and wife and family. He set up the church, him, the head, us, the bride, him, the groom. He set up life in such a way to say, I want you to see the kingdom. I want you to see who I am and these different expressions here on earth. And when you unravel the family, you then can start to unravel who God is and his character and people start questioning those things. And that's what's happening in our day and age, right? People question that God is really a good father because they didn't have a good father. People may question, well, how, how can God really be like that? Because I didn't experience that with my authorities. People question, well, how, how can God really love me? Because no one in my family really loved me, right? So it's hard for us. There's such a disconnect. We don't experience something on earthly terms. There's a disconnect to experience something on his terms. But what I want us to do today is I want us to look through a new lens, all right? We're gonna look at family through a new lens. So I want us to go to Genesis 12. I've got it up on the screen. But, you know, when you look at the story of the Bible, what's threaded throughout it is the family. Like the entire Bible is actually connecting the dots back to Jesus, you know? It's like, who was Jesus' great, 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 great grandpa? And so it tells that story. I mean, all these characters are through the lineage of genealogy. In fact, in Matthew chapter one, it goes through the genealogy. Usually that part you skip because you want to get on the Sermon on the Mount. That part actually tells you the rich history and family of Jesus. And if you go in and look at those characters, there's some wild stories there. And so before anyone starts feeling like ashamed or guilty because your family's messed up, just look at all the grandparents of Christ. Pretty messed up people, Okay. So do not think that, oh man, well, Jesus had it all good. Well, it's like, hey, you know what? He actually had a whole history of people who had gone before him. It actually talked about him, you know, uh, that he was in the line of David, in the line of Abraham. And these guys actually messed up a few times, right? So let's, let's just look at Abraham, right? Now, before he was named Abraham, he was Abram. Genesis 12, one through three, the Lord comes to him and says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. If you don't know about Abram, eventually becomes Abraham, becomes the father um, to really the nation of Israel, to the Jewish people today. And this is where this whole deal started. And so, but at the time, Abram was 75 years old, right? Okay, so he's 75 years old. God spoke to him about family and a nation and a land he would inherit, but he didn't have any kids. He was married to Sarah, who was barren, who couldn't get pregnant. They're at 75. So they, they end up um, taking their, 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 their nephew named Lot, they take him out of Egypt and on their way to this promised land, God was promising them, um, the Lord spoke to Abram. He stopped him and he said, Abram, I want you to stop. Here you're standing in the land of Canaan. And he says, to your offspring, I will give this land. Again, God's saying, hey, here's a promise. I need you to trust me. To your offspring, I'll give this land. And Abram's gotta be thinking, God, I still don't have kids. I know you know that. <laughs> well, then let's continue on to Genesis 15, verse five and six. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven. So it's the Lord bringing Abram outside. And he says, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now that's an important phrase. Because here's Abram 
with no kids, and God speaks to him and says, look up at the stars. He didn't have it. He didn't have some telescope, okay? All right? But what he did have was his own two, two eyes, and he looked up, and he saw these stars, and God's saying, number the stars if you can even number them, and that's going to be the number of descendants you have. And it says that he believed. He believed before he had the evidence of a son. He believed before the promise was fulfilled. So let me ask you, do you need, do you need God to show you the evidence before you believe? And many of us like evidence. I mean, we are factual. Like, we want the hard evidence, you know? We want the evidence before we believe, but that's not the way it works with God, actually, because that's actually not belief. You have to believe before you see it. You have to believe before you actually experience it. That is what real faith is. And so after 11 years, since the original promise given in Genesis 12, Sarah and Abram decided to choose another path that was not the one God laid out for them. He had spoken, I'm going to give you descendants, right? But Sarah's over here thinking, it's not going to be through me because I can't have any children. So then she goes to Abram and says, hey, what about Hagar, the maidservant, the woman we took with us from Egypt? What about her? He says, okay. So Abram actually marries her, and then he gets her pregnant, and she has Ishmael, which is not the path that God had chosen for them. God was speaking to Abram about him and Sarah. But so he went outside of that because he was not patient. Now, listen, 11 years is a long time. I'm not sure any of us can sit there and judge Abram. <laughs> okay, that's like, some of us are like, hey, God, it's been a week. I mean, <laughs> you promised me a husband. <laughs> What's the deal? <laughs> right? Where is he? Saturday's come and gone. Okay? You know what I'm saying? It's like, God, you spoke to me. I'm going to get a job. I've had one interview. What happened? Right? I'm kind of, kind of playing up here, but let's all be honest. We are an impatient people by nature, okay? Which is why I'm so glad we were, I'm, I'm over declaring, God, you are slow to anger. Oh, I'm so glad he is patient because if not, we are all toast, right? So, <laughs> but here he is, right? So 11 years prior, but he chooses to go with Hagar. He has the son Ishmael. So have we ever gotten a promise from God, but then just been impatient or tried to go around it? Because you can, you can imagine, right? He's like, hey, he said the stars. Well, uh, did it have to be Sarah? Could it have been another woman? Well, maybe this is God's plan, you know? Don't ever be like, well, maybe. Don't, don't assume, right? And so he assumed, and then he was wrong, right? And so, but in the midst of all of this, 25 years now, let's go from 11 years after the promise. Now we're 25 years after the Genesis 12 promise. God gives Abraham and Sarah son, Isaac. Finally gets him 25 years. Oh, that's a long time. 25 years. And guess what? He's like 100 years old now. He's 100 years old with this firstborn son. Had to wait 25 years after God said, you're going to have a great nation. You're going to possess the lamb. You're going to have descendants. It's going to be great, Abram. And finally, 25 years later. And remember, the genealogy of Jesus Christ runs through Isaac. Abraham to Isaac to his many sons, the tribes of Israel, and Jesus appears later on. Now, why is this important? Because when we decide to follow our own path or logic, we usually get it wrong. When we decide to take something from God and maybe twist it a little bit or do it our own way, it's not God's best. Now, Ishmael was actually blessed. I don't know if you know that, but when you read the scriptures, he actually was blessed. blessed. Actually, Hagar was blessed. It wasn't that they were a curse or something. Because God is so good and gracious and generous, he's actually blessed. And so, but, but God's plan was to wait 
and hold on to the promise. Now, he was a man of righteousness. It says that he believed him. It's righteousness, right? It, it, it honored Abram. We read about him in, in the book of Hebrews. That he's like in the halls of faith. as a man of faith, but he still went around God in that moment. But you know what I love is that um, God is so merciful, <laughs> isn't he? He's so, he's so, it's like 11 years after, then, and then 14 years later, he finally gives him his son. God was so merciful and gracious to still fulfill that promise, even though Abram went around it. Guys, all of us have tried to go around God. Let's be honest. We've all tried to do family maybe a little different way than maybe how he's prescribed it. We've maybe all gone about relationships a little different way than maybe how he has asked us to do it. But what I know about God is that he's faithful to fulfill his promises and his timing and in his ways. It's not our timing, it's not our ways, but he's looking for us to trust. And I just wanna say this, that even if you hold on to a promise from God and you don't personally get to see it fulfilled in your lifetime, it doesn't mean God's not gonna do it, it doesn't mean God's not good. There's a whole list of people in Hebrews chapter 11, I believe, that talk about they held on to the promise of God, they never got to see it fulfilled in their lifetime, but they trusted him. You would want to go to heaven knowing that you came in full of faith. I believe for it, it never happened, but I believed. And I was labeled a fool in society, but in heaven, you're not labeled a fool. Do you care about what earth's gonna say or what heaven will say, right? You, you don't, yeah, I'd rather the tombstone say, what a fool for Jesus, crazy lunatic for Jesus. That'd be awesome. Put it on my tombstone, that sounds great. Because in heaven, it's like, look at this hero. This guy's awesome. That's what I'm looking for. If your sights are set there, you don't really care about all the noise down here. See, we need to zero in again on who God is and who we are. Who God is, he is faithful, he is trustworthy, he is good, he is a father, he is full of mercy and grace, just as we talked about a moment ago. He is so good. And in order for us to experience a full life that he intended for us, we've got to tap back into that and to see him for who he is and to see family as he wants us to see family, okay? And so we've got to trust God and have faith that God will fill his promises, just as Abram had, had, had to be trusted in that place. And so um, before we jump into just a couple of practicals here, I just want to say that there's no family without blemish. Every one of our families has that dark secret that no one wants to talk about. <laughs> Every one of our families has that quirky uncle or nephew or cousin, or it's you. And, you know, I mean, it was me at times, you know, and it's just like, we all got it, okay? So like before, like I said earlier, this is not, we're not judging, we're not comparing. You are comparing yourself to God. So that is fair. You're actually allowed one comparison in life. Compare yourself to Jesus Christ. There it is. Your character, your leadership, your humility, your patience, your love, your grace, all of that. Just compare it. Just put Jesus on the wall. Put him on the wall. List out everything about him and be motivated just to be like that. That's the poster you should be making. They're like 1,001 things about Jesus, and just memorize that. Put that on the mirror, okay? That's what you're comparing yourself to. That's a good thing. That's a good comparison. The rest of it, you shouldn't be doing. So compare yourself to him and how he says us to do things. But we want to look at the family, okay? And so we're going to adjust our perspective a little bit on just some family things. Um, now, a couple of weeks ago, I'd gone into the optometrist to go get my eyes checked or whatever, 
And, um, and I go in there, you know how it is. You go in there, it's like dark room. It's kind of creepy. And, and they turn the lights off and they put a thing over there. And, you know, my eyes aren't perfect, but I'm there. And they got the little thingy, you know, and it's like one, two. Number one, number two. Number three, number two, number one. And you're back and forth. You're like, I don't know, lady. I mean, it's pretty... Oh, I, okay. It's like 10 minutes. You're like, are we really getting somewhere? I mean, you don't you think you're like, what is the, what is the deal here? And so I'm going through, you know, and if, and, and you also, you know, you're not, you're not wanting to guess, right? You know, like, uh, F, you know, and it's like wrong and your prescription is blurry. You know, it's like, you're not wanting to cheat the system at the eye doctor. There's no points for like, I think I guessed that one. I mean, that's not good. Okay. You don't want guessing. Um, but I know some of you have tried. You've tried. And some of you children, don't do that. Don't guess. Just be honest. I can't see, you know. It's a very humbling experience. <laughs> but I know there's been times, too, I'm looking at it, and I'm like, ooh, I want to get that Superman vision. So I'm like, it's a little blurry. It's like a little sharper. It's like super sharp. I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm going for that 2015, right? <laughs> I've never gotten 2015. I think I'm just a 2020 guy with the context. But Nonetheless, I'm there doing the whole eye thingy, and they're going through it, and it goes from blurry to clear. And the whole goal is to figure out for you, Mr. and Mrs. Individual, how to help you see straight, right? I, that's the goal. It really is an individual deal. They even tell you, don't wear someone else's contacts or whatever. I know we do that, right? Spouses sometimes or glasses, and it's like, well, this isn't good, you know? And Okay, but no, you need to be able to see clearly. It's to help you adjust your vision, right? Now, if you don't know about the whole 2020 daily, just to remind us, it means that more or less that the test subject um, sees the same line of letters at 20 feet as the person normal vision sees at 20 feet, right? So that is 2020 versus 2040, meaning the normal person sees something at 40 feet that you can only see at 20 feet, right? So our goal today is to get us closer to 2020, aka normal, right? Normal as in biblical, right? We're, we're trying to get to normal biblical perspective adjustment. So I'm just going to say all of us need the adjustment this morning. Now let's go to adjustment number one. You ready? See as God sees. See as God sees. Now in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we have the story of Samuel going to select the new king of Israel. Let's pick it up there. It says in verse seven, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Isn't that good? Like, I love that the people of Israel, they chose Saul, right? Big, handsome, strong warrior Saul, right? And that didn't pan out very good. He got kind of crazy there at the end. He started throwing spears, trying to kill David, but they wanted a king. And just to say, before Saul, who was the king? God. God was the king. But they started looking around. What'd they do? What's that C word we don't like? Comparison. They were like, well, hey, look at these, look at these other, these other tribes, these other nations, other kingdoms. They've got kings. Well, why don't we have one? Well, I don't know. What do you think? Let's muster up some support. Let's do a little campaign for a king, you know? So start campaigning for the king. Hey, we need a king. We don't want to be like them over there. And God's like, you knuckleheads. Okay, fine. <laughs> he finally gives him a king. And go back and read through. He gives him some pretty clear warnings. If you read them, it's like, oh, yeah, that's totally true. That's totally true of kings. But God was their king. But they said, we're going to reject you as king. We want some man to be our king. 
they chose Saul. That didn't pan out very well. But God is so what? Gracious and merciful and loving and patient. He said, even though you guys blew it, I'm picking the king this time, right? Because the people kick, they, the people pick Saul and God's like, okay, no, I'm gonna send my little prophet guy. None of you gonna know about it. He's gonna go select the king out in the middle of nowhereville. And then in 20 years, you all know who the guy is, right? It's like a sneaky pick. So he goes out there. He goes to Jesse. Hey, where's all your sons? You know, here they are. He lines them up. And Samuel is like, Lord's like, no, no, no. Remember, I'm looking at the heart. No, he's like, really? This, this guy looks pretty sharp. You know, no, no, no. Uh, I'm out of sons here. Where's the other one? Well, there's, there. there's a squirrely one over there. He's over there. He's over there with the sheep. Well, why don't you bring him down here? All right, David comes down. And this is David, scrawny David. Scrawny, do not think Goliath killer guy yet. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that like thing in Florence, you know, the like chisel statue, that, okay, that wasn't David. David's just a little squirrely 13, 14 year old boy. And he brings him down there and Samuel's like, that's my guy. And everyone's like, what? Samuel, get your eyes checked, you know? And he's like, no, I see the heart. Look at the heart. And God chose David, because God sees differently than we see. We would pick Saul. <laughs> he was a horrible king. But God picks David. As far as I know, he was the greatest king they ever had. Now, without blemish, made some major mistakes. But overall, the greatest king, because God picked him. You know, um, what's interesting about that story is the entire family wrote off David. His dad his brothers, the people closest to him never saw the potential. Anyone else feel like that? <laughs> like everyone wrote you off. No one gave you the time of day. That coach, that parent, you're a nobody. You know, I was talking to my mom over 4th of July, and um, she's telling me a story about my grandpa, Papa John. He passed away several years ago. But she's telling me that when she was growing up that, um, you know, he, he grew up in a very small town in Oklahoma and they didn't have a lot of education and stuff. And he'd grown up and got through high school and started working a job. And, um, but the whole time, like when he's younger, teachers and other people just told him he was kind of dumb and that he couldn't read and couldn't do other schoolwork. And so eventually he just kind of just believed them that he couldn't read. So mom's telling me this story. And she said, you know, I, she said, Tyler, when I was in high school, my mom, when she was in high school and my grandpa was working these sales jobs, okay, he'd been working 10, 15 years and, and stuff. Like, he would come home and, and on the weekends, and he would have my mom read these manuals to him. That he's trying to learn about the equipment and stuff. She'd read out loud to my grandpa for hours. And eventually, my mom said to him one day, when she's in high school, she said, she said, Dad, you can read this stuff. He was like, I don't think I can read that stuff. She said, Dad, I want you to try to read this stuff. So my Papa John started reading with her and realized pretty quickly he actually could read. Like, this whole time, he could read. But he had believed the lie, he couldn't. Because too many people told him he couldn't. And she said, it was like, for my dad, it was this huge burden, this weight. He had lived his whole life thinking he's an idiot. But he could read the whole time. <laughs> oh, man, I heard that, and I wanted to strangle those people that told that my grandpa. <laughs> I'm sure they're gone now, but <laughs> I just, I was like, oh, my gosh. Oh, I mean, Think if you're that parent. You know, it's like you want to get Mother Bear riled up on the sports field. 
You just have that coach just say that thing about that kid and you are, you better look out. She's coming with both fists. I mean, it's just like, do not talk to my boy like that, you know? And I heard the story and I was like, oh my gosh, that is what we do to people all the time because we do not see them as God sees. We need to correct, we need to adjust. We see them for how everybody else sees them. But God's not saying that. When you become a believer in Christ, he gives you the Holy Spirit, which actually helps you and guides you and gives you a new prescription and a new vision to see people. So quit seeing them like you used to see them and start seeing them as they are and as they can be. So my question is, have you, have you asked God about your wife, your husband? Have you asked God about your children? Have you actually written down a description and said, this is how God sees my son. This is how, and listen, if you don't have your own family yet, you're part of a family, this is how I see my mom and dad. This is how I see my brother and sister. This is how God sees my brother, who I'm not, who I'm not at odds with right now. But I need to get God's heart for them and God's vision for them, and then things will start getting restored. Things are not getting better over Christmas because you give them a nice present. That, that doesn't do it, just so you know. That's momentary happiness. And then it's all over the next day. But what will change it is when you have a heart change and a, and a vision change, and you start saying, I'm gonna see you, and I'm gonna treat you, I'm gonna talk to you differently. Guys, that is ours to take and run with. That is your responsibility. If you are a follower in Christ, it is not their responsibility, it is yours. You are the initiator. I don't care where you are. If you're the youngest out of 15 kids in your family, you got the responsibility to start making those connections and rebuilding those relationships because if you see as God sees, it'll happen. Amen? And just one last thing is we need to see as God sees. Um, we, we need to not get, in a sense, nearsighted and get stuck on their immaturity, on their behavioral things, you know, on the little quirks, on the things that annoy you because everybody's gonna annoy you somewhere. And so don't get stuck on that, especially with kids. They're, they're kids, you know. You are annoying too. I mean, you know, it's like, yes. And someone loved you enough to help you through that journey, right? All right, adjustment number two. We got to move here. Adjustment number two. Enjoy them and decide for them. Enjoy them and decide for them. I actually want you to write this one down. Enjoy them and decide for them, all right? So what do I mean by that? Um, look and see what they enjoy by giving them a variety of experiences, right? And then over time, as they mature, as they experience different things, they will then develop and have experienced a variety of sports, a variety of arts and crafts, a variety of music and instruments, a variety of hobbies, a variety of experiences. You, as the parent, need to give them the variety and to show them that. They are not in charge, you are in charge. You are the parent. It doesn't mean we don't, we're not allowed to ask our kids what they're interested in, but it does mean that they have no idea what they're doing until you start giving them experiences, right? And what we don't wanna do as parents is to peg our children at the age of five with all the future projections and to say, here's your hobby, your career, and your personality. Because you know why? Because they grow up and they grow out. Kids grow up and then they grow out of stuff, right? So just, just a, a silly example for about three years of my life when I was a kid, I was pretty picky on the eating side of things. Um, so I got so picky, there was for about a year, I think my mom tells me, I would only eat grape jelly sandwiches for lunch. Notice I said grape jelly, not peanut butter, just grape jelly. 
And yes, these are the days of high fructose corn syrup. It's not even grapes. And this is white bread, which isn't even bread. Somehow, I still made it eating nothing. Okay. But don't worry, I moved on from grape jelly to my mac and cheese phase. Yeah. Mac and cheese. You know Kraft, those little, used to be little dinosaur shapes. I still remember to this day, I could make mac and cheese. It was like half a stick of butter, a quarter cup of milk, a little powder, noodles, we're there. There's zero protein in mac and cheese, but it was delicious, right? Especially coming out of that microwave. I ate mac and cheese. And you're like, Tyler, how are you still alive? It's a miracle, okay? So parents, quit freaking out if your kid has too much ice cream or eats mac and cheese. They're fine, okay? <laughs> Notice, though, they were phases because you grow out of phases. I have not eaten a grape jelly sandwich in over 30 years, probably, okay? I put peanut butter on now, so... But I remember literally it's like one day, and, and listen, and like, so like with, with, with hamburgers, I was a cheese only kind of guy, okay, only cheese. So we'd go to the restaurants, my parents knew. But one day it just dawned on me that I was like, I'm going to try something new. So I'm like, I'll take a cheeseburger with pickles, onions, tomatoes, lettuce, and my parents' jaws dropped. Like, what? And it's like, how about a little ketchup on that too? Like, what just happened? I was like, I'm going to try it. And I liked it. It's like, I was so stubborn in this phase, no way. I would not get anywhere near a pickle. It's like, it's actually pretty good, you know? So just so you know, don't freak out about your kids. Let them be kids because they will grow up and they will grow out. Now, I want to balance the statement just for a moment here um, because, you know, whether it's food stuff, phases, an academic interest they have, maybe they're into science or into math or into this. It could be hobbies. I'm into this sport. I'm into this sport. I'm into this thing, this kind of dance, whatever. They're going to grow up and grow up, but you've got to give them a myriad of experiences so they can then figure out who they are and how God has made them, all right? But what it does not mean, it bounces statement, is that children get to choose um, every sport or hobby in life, right? And so as a parent, you give them a variety of experiences, but then you also need to help them cultivate and to kind of figure out, okay, these experiences seem like things you really enjoy, right? So if your child really likes instruments and they're playing and they're really great at that, but they sing and it's like, this maybe isn't your strong gift, you know, <laughs> then you love them to say, let's stick with the instrument. And we put you on the back line here and you're jamming it out and you're awesome. You know, I mean, honestly, like they're like, I love our whole band just, you know, but all of them can't sing great. But all of them can play something, you know, or sing. And I love that. And there's no judgment because it's like we need every person up here to be thriving in their sweet spot. Does that make sense? So, again, we're talking about giving our children a chance to do different things. And I just want to say most kids are going to kick and scream or push back when you tell them, hey, we're enrolling you in XYZ. It's like, I don't want to do violin, mom, you know, or I'm not even good at soccer. It's like most kids are like, scared and a little nervous about doing anything for the first time, okay? But what I do know is that when we get in those experiences, guys, oh, they come alive. They're like, Dad, how can we ever do this before? And it's like, because you were so stubborn about it, you know? I mean, whatever you've got to do, okay? So we are here to help our kids understand. And just, you know, when I talk about um, uh, creating these experiences, really, parents, you got a zero to 18 run. Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. They're always your kids, but we're trying to get them to adulthood. 
That, that should be our goal. I don't know about society. That is my goal. What I see scripturally, what I see functioning, I'm like, at 18 years old, you need to be ready. Ready to take on the world. Yes, you can go to college. Yes, you can start your first job. Yes, you can do whatever, but be ready. Be an adult. You're not an adolescent. You're an adult now at 18 years old. That should be your goal. So parents, you are training and parenting to get them to a place where they are able to stay on their own two feet and contribute to the world and contribute to the kingdom of God, all right? That should be your goal, your trajectory. So, um, and, and just, you know, kind of one more note on this whole deal about giving them a variety of experiences and you deciding for them. Um, I, was, I was getting my teeth worked on a couple years ago, back to the, back to the dentist deal, and um, and I was there, and this lady who was cleaning my teeth, we got to talking, I think in between all the whatever, the brushing and the spitting and all that stuff, and, and I was talking to her about we're doing some, we're going to like the beach or something. She said, oh, I love the beach. I said, oh, so you love swimming and stuff? She said, no, 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 I don't swim. This lady's in her mid-50s, and I said, oh, you don't swim? I said, why not? She said, my family, we just, we never swam, and I've been scared to death of the water my whole life. She said, I will go out to my knees, but that's it, but my husband holds my hand. And I'm sitting there and I was like, oh, wow. And I listened to her and what I realized was that no one gave her the experience of swimming as a child. You ask any adult who can't swim, there may be some in this room and that's okay. It's really hard to overcome the fear of swimming if you didn't do it as a kid. It's really hard. It's difficult. But I would say for every kid I've ever seen taught to swim or I've taught them, they usually are crying and screaming getting in the water right? They don't like it. Um, but who knows a kid here in the middle of July in Texas, you say, hey, and they can swim. Here's a pool. They're like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to get in there. I like sweating right here. That doesn't look fun. No, you have to like, hold on. Don't jump in a sunscreen. You know I mean? They're leaping in. But every one of those kids were like, I'm going to die. I don't want to go in the water. And especially when you tongue their heads under, they're like, oh, I can breathe. Oh, that was kind of nice. Let's do it again. I mean, just, <laughs> you are the parent. You know what's best for them. My kids love riding bikes, but they were scared to death to get on a bike. And I'd hold their shirt and ride with them. Like, they don't let go, don't let go. And then I let go sneakily, but they don't notice, you know? And then they're like, they're like oh, you let go. And they, you know, they crash. <laughs> but they're doing just fine. You are the parent, which means you decide for them. At some day later on in their life, not when they're four, they will then help you understand, hey, mom and dad, this is what I want to do, and then you get behind that. The early days, though, you're shaping it. Once they try things, they've been tested, they've been pushed, they've now been seen as trustworthy, they get an opportunity. Okay, now here we go. For adjustment three, I'm going to wrap it up here. Adjustment three, prioritize family over friends and ministry. Prioritize your family over friends and ministry. Now, I wish I could spend all day on this one, but I'm just going to make a, a couple comments here. I want to ask the question, what is the greatest source of pain in your life? I'm going to give you multiple choices, okay? If you can't think of it, here you go. Multiple choice options. Uh, so these, these are like relational pains, okay? Option A, church leaders or church members. Option B, a coach. Option C, a friend. Option D, a coworker or boss, or option E, a family member. Think about it just a second. Okay, you don't need to tell me what your answers are because I already know. The majority of you, if you really dig down deep enough, are going to say option E. Majority. We don't like to admit it, but that's the greatest place of joy and the greatest place of pain. Um. Because family is so 
impactful. And I would argue option E plus kind of equaling mom and dad. Um, you know, we offer listening prayer ministry here at the church, and it's just you sit down with two people, and they just help you just talk to God, and you're just praying and asking God to speak into places in your life and pain. And many of you have done that, and it's been really helpful and fruitful because it's allowing God to speak in these places of pain. Um, my wife's done some recently, and we were talking today, and she said, Tyler, 95% of these prayer ministries are just going back to the family. It's not, it's not the coworker. It's not the friend. It's not what happened even in college. It's what happened when they were kids. And that then created a domino effect. The family is so vital, guys. It is so vital that I want to encourage us to prioritize family over friends and ministry. Because, guys, if we can get marriage right, um, then we can have a chance to get family right. And if we get family right, then the church can get right. And if the church gets right, society can get right. Like God designed it for the marriage to be healthy, then the family to be healthy, then for the church to get healthy, and that then affect all society. That is the goal. But if the marriage and the family and the church ain't healthy in here in these walls, we got a problem. We don't have a whole lot to offer everybody else because we're just as broken and messed up as they are. Right? And so we all come in broken and messed up in the kingdom of God, but he begins to heal us and restore us and meet us in those tender places. And when we say prioritize your family over friends, listen, friends will come and go in your life, but your family will be with you till you're old. Your friends will come and go. We don't want to think that, especially when I was in college, like we're friends forever. It's like, I don't know many of those people anymore. But I thought at the time that it was just, that was it. I mean, your family is the thing you've got to prioritize. And there's a balance, right? There, there's a balance. And I would just argue that you should give your kids more of you than your friends get. Give your kids more energy than your friends get because they're the ones that really matter the most. Prioritize your family over ministry. Just a couple of things on this. When we planted the church 10 years ago, we made a commitment or a goal, I would, I would say, to be able to have a healthy marriage, healthy family, and a healthy church. Those things aren't always perfect, but we push for that. We strive for that. We prioritize for that. And it's because that we do not want to be the pastors at a church to where our kids just go off crazy because we never gave them attention. We all know those stories. And it's not just church. It can be in your business. You could be the uh, founder of a company, or you could just be working a job when your career becomes the thing, or, or your friends become the thing. But it's like the family's got to be there. In the realm of ministry, it's hard because we want to help people. That's who we are. We want to help people, but a lot of times we can overlook our own kids, our own family. And when it comes to prioritizing your family over ministry, you've got to learn to say two different phrases. <laughs> Yes and no. Yes and no. It, it has to be okay, church, for someone to look at you and say, thank you so much for inviting me to that party, but I can't come. It's not because I don't love you, it's because I need to spend time with my family. And for us to respect that. Because your capacity is different than someone else's. Someone else may be able to hit up seven birthday parties in a week. Sounds great. The other person's doing one a month. That sounds great too. I don't really care what you do. Just make sure you do it before God. You're honest about it. You're making sure that you're creating a balance for your family, all right? It means that sometimes you meet up in person, and sometimes you just talk on the phone or leave a voice memo. It means that sometimes you rise early to disciple someone at 6 a.m. in one season, and the next season it's over lunch, and the next season maybe you take a break for a few months. It means that you're choosing to say yes to some opportunities and no to other ones. It's being on the phone and off the phone. That's how you prioritize family 
of our ministry. You notice you didn't hear me say friends and ministry don't matter. They deeply matter. They matter the heart of God. They matter to us as people, but they cannot trump the family. You know, Matthew 20, 19 to 20 says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The great commission, the very thing that we are going after, why we sent people, 270 people across the world this summer on mission trips, the very thing that motivates us and drives us to reach people in our city, this call to go make disciples, can I just tell you, your most important disciples are your children. They're your most important disciples and most of the time get overlooked. Your most important disciples are your children and they get overlooked. So I want us to stand today as we close, invite the band up. And, um, you know, I'm just, I'm just gonna have us stay where we are this morning as we end, but um, so I just, I want everyone to respond to this. Um, but you know, in, in Mark chapter 10, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about how do we correct our vision? How do we get a bit of an adjustment? And I just want to say, I think everyone in the room, whether you're a parent now or not, or a son or a daughter, or wherever you're at in your life, there's an adjustment we can have. Whether it's seeing people as God sees, whether it's in the realm of parenting, we're giving them experiences and deciding for them, you know, wh- whatever it may be, but there's some adjustments we can make this morning. But in Mark chapter 10, we see the story of Bartimaeus. He was blind. He's known as Blind Bartimaeus, this man. And Jesus comes into town and it says, um, he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be quiet. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus, a blind man. And in verse 51 in Mark chapter 10, it says, and Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Guys, I don't think any of us have 20-20 vision this morning. You may be close. You may be 2,200. You may be 2025. Maybe just you're right there. I'm almost right there. But the question is, what do you want Jesus to do for you this morning? I, I read that because I want you to know that this guy was literally blind, like physically, medically blind, unable to see. And in the span of about five seconds, he goes from being a blind man his whole life to seeing. Which means if you feel like you have not been a great parent or a great son or daughter, if you feel like, man, there's so much brokenness in my family, I don't even know how it can begin to get repaired. This guy was physically blind and God healed him in a moment. God can heal things in a moment. It doesn't mean there's not a process to walking that out, but the healing can begin now. So here's how we're gonna end. We're just gonna worship, but I want you to ask the question, 
Jesus, or Jesus asking the question, what do you want me to do for you? I want you to respond and just say, okay, Lord, here I am. Oftentimes we do ask, God, what do you want me to do? But today we're gonna flip it around because Jesus is asking you, what do you want me to do for you? What relationship, what person, what mindset, what correction needs to happen, what adjustment needs to be made, but ask him this morning. I'm convinced he wants to do it, amen? So let me pray for us and then just stay where you're at. I want you to respond to God. You can jump into worship. I want you to first just start out hearing Jesus say, what do you want me to do for you? So Lord, we thank you. We're so grateful. You reach into our world. You help us with our blindness or what we can't see. And we're asking and believing right now that you would call forth the things deep in our hearts, the things that are off, we put before you say, Jesus, this is what I need from you. This is what I need you to do. Lord, give us the faith like Abraham to believe that whatever we ask, whatever we pray, whatever we petition before you, God, it'll come to pass. So let's believe God this morning and respond to him. Thank you, Jesus.